Welcome to a history of the North. Today we will look at Sweden for a third and final episode. Last time we saw how Sweden fought against the Hanseatic League, tackled the Kalmar Union and Gustav Vasa's rise to power. Today we are looking into what the Swedish powerhouse got itself into all the way from the 1600s to today. I hope you enjoy. So, what did this state-of-the-art state get up to? Well, stuff like having the first modern army in Europe, meaning a permanent army as opposed to mercenaries, actually functional systems of taxation, and the very sexy concept of government bureaucracy. Sweden also had a go at imperialism, especially around the 1600s, Sweden won wars against Denmark, Russia and Poland, and basically took complete control of the Baltic Sea. Which was important, because Eastern Scandinavia was the main European supplier of stuff like copper, timber, iron, grain, furs and tars. In 1611, Gustavus Adolphus was hailed as king, and he turned out to be one of the greatest military commanders of all time. When it comes to determining which king was the best, in quotation marks, it is of course not really a hard science or hard history. And of course, no king was ever really that good, as the system of monarchy is essentially built on exploiting and repressing the population. But I think that you could think of different categories of leaders. Gustav Vasa was probably the kind of king who was really good at managing a startup. He had nothing to begin with, but gradually found himself making the smart decision to cement his own position and power. Gustavus Adolphus, on the other hand, had a kingdom built for him already. What he was good at was taking something and perfecting it. This was definitely true on the battlefield, where he was one of the first to combine the use of artillery, infantry and cavalry in a meaningful way. But he was also quite the innovator when it came to economic reforms, trade, modernization and other less glamorous tasks. Vasa was a kingdom builder, Adolphus was a kingdom innovator. I guess it's not dissimilar to a concept in sports where you have some managers who know how to rebuild a team from scratch and other managers who know how to win trophies, and it's usually really hard to do both at the same time. By the time Adolphus died in a battle in 1632, Sweden was well on its way to not just be a regional power in Scandinavia, but to influence the politics of the entire European peninsula. This brings us to a very specific event that we haven't covered yet, the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War was quite aptly named, as it lasted 30 years from 1618 to 1648. Even though you might say that it was not really one war, but rather a series of conflicts, but that is boring and technical, so we are calling it one war, the Thirty Years' War. The background for this war is a bit complex, but largely there are two main reasons. The first is the power struggle between the Habsburgs, rulers of the Holy Roman Empire, and the Bourbons, rulers of the muscular French state. The other was a more philosophical and religious reason. Following the Reformation, a lot of the small states of the Holy Roman Empire had become Protestants, or other forms of Reformed Christian. 
while some, of course, stayed Catholic. The problem with this was, who could decide what a certain state was supposed to officially believe? The Catholics felt that they should decide, the Protestants felt otherwise, and this tension would often escalate into conflict. For these two reasons, the entire continent of Europe was embroiled in a very violent war for 30 years. Somewhere between 4 and 8 million people died, which were huge numbers in the 1600s. I mean, they still are, but casualties of this magnitude were absolutely unheard of at the time. But anyway, the conflict was mainly in Germany and France, so why did the Swedes care? Well, the Catholics, led by the Habsburg-Austrian Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, were winning the war. The Swedes were somewhat concerned that the Catholics would turn their focus onto Sweden once they won definitively in Germany. In 1630, the Swedish army landed on the northern coast of Germany. In the following four years, Sweden would more or less stampede through the German duchies, winning military conflicts rather easily, at least for a time. The big problem was diplomacy. You see, the Protestants were, compared to the Catholics, quite decentralized, and two neighboring Protestant duchies might see each other as just as big a threat as they saw the Catholics, and they did not necessarily have any grounds for trusting Sweden. The Swedes had to maneuver politics with people who they might have thought would be their grateful allies. Of course, the military genius Gustavus Adolphus died in 1632, which had a quite tacit effect on the capability of the Swedish army. For two years they had really obliterated any opposition, but now they started to lose battles, possibly simply due to war fatigue rather than singularly because of the death of Adolphus, but nevertheless his death signals the beginning of the end of Swedish intervention. Eventually, Sweden more or less pulled out of the war. What Sweden had achieved, however, was to revitalize the Protestant effort, and more importantly, to show that Sweden was a great power that could have a massive effect on a war between the European superpowers. Sweden was here to stay. Sweden peaked around 1660, having control of chunks of Norway, the East Baltic and even Germany. It was also around this time that Sweden finally came into control of the tip of the southern Swedish peninsula. The southernmost part of the country had been under Danish control, but was won after battering the Danes in war. Of course, everything has an end. Sweden had successfully curbed the ambitions of Denmark and Poland, but in the year 1700, a new threat emerged, ready to challenge the supremacy of Sweden, Russia. This meant the outbreak of the Great Northern War. And as we have discussed in the Finland episodes, it was not exactly a great war if you were a Finn. But it was also kind of a bummer if you were a Swede. Because the war ended with Russia proclaiming themselves an empire in 1721, and Sweden not really being able to support their claim to be an empire any longer. However, the war did bring something interesting to Sweden, that us modern democratic snowflakes would tend to see as a sort of a victory. The Age of Liberty. The Age of Liberty, or Frihetstiden, as it is known in Swedish, literally the freedom time, 
was a period in Swedish history where Sweden was governed by the parliament rather than the king. So Sweden used to have an absolutist king with all the power in the world, and a parliament, the Riksdag, in an advisory role. But now the realm was directly ruled by representatives of the different estates in society. How did that happen? Well, as with many big changes in history, it had to do with several crises happening at once. First of all, the Great Northern War was going not so great for Sweden. Quite badly, actually. Then the king died, leaving no heirs, meaning that the king's sister, Ulrike Eleonora, took over. The war put an enormous amount of pressure on the queen-to-be, and she was not exactly in a strong position, politically, to begin with. So in order to win the throne, she had to dissolve most of the power of the crown in favor of the Riksdag, the parliament. This meant that power was now divided between nobles, priests, burgesses and peasants. Although most power went to the nobles and least to the peasants. Some animals are more equal than others. The Age of Liberty lasted from 1719 to 1772. The end of liberty came with a so-called self-coup. You see, Sweden still had monarchs during the Age of Liberty. They were just basically powerless compared to what they used to be. One such monarch, Gustav III, had had enough with the liberty, the abuse of power by the nobility, who, to be fair, did perhaps enjoy themselves a bit too much while in power. And in 1772, Gustav III organized a coup got some friends and some soldiers to join him. Then he went to the capital, Stockholm, personally going from regiment to regiment to convince the military there to join him. And within a day, he had the capital under his control, without firing a shot. And voila, he overthrew the parliament. No, really, that was pretty much all that happened. Perhaps the coup was so easy because the parliament was not necessarily that popular, Not that they were hated or anything, but most of the military, which is what you need for a coup, were quite neutral in their opinion of the parliament, meaning that a charismatic king with some tempting promises would be, well, tempting to follow. Now, with liberty quashed for now, and Gustav III on the throne, was the age of liberty followed by an age of darkness and oppression? I mean, definitely, yes, because kings oppress but not as much as you might think. Gustav led with old-school absolutism. And within a few years, he had stamped out independent media by restricting free speech. He also gained quite substantial personal profits from the transatlantic slave trade. So, you know, not the best guy. But that was not all. These things were what all other kings at the time did. I mean, that's not an excuse. Be a better man, Gustav. But still, quite expected. What Gustav did that was more uncommon was that he enabled not just the nobility but all citizens to work in the government. Probably meant his last screw you to the nobles. He spent a lot of money on culture such as the Swedish Academy, the guys who make the Nobel Prize, whose motto by the way is Snille och Smak, which roughly translates to genius and good taste, which is confident of one's own importance. But anyway, I just found that a bit funny. Where were we? Yes, culture. Gustav also had the Royal Swedish Opera built. I've actually been there. It's a nice venue. Quite an iconic part of the Stockholm culture. 
Apart from the cultural vanity projects, Gustav also made liberal reforms to the economy, social reforms, and he restricted the use of capital punishment and torture. So you know, ups and downs. At any rate, Gustav III was a new breed of ruler. He was a great admirer of Voltaire and an adherent to what we now call enlightened despotism. Inspired by the American and French Revolution and the philosophy of the Enlightenment, enlightened despots saw their subjects not just as resources to spend, but also as citizens that they had an obligation to care about, to educate, to keep healthy and safe. Of course, they also still saw them as resources to spend, but not only that. Gustav met his end in 1792, where he was shot by an assassin in an attempted coup by the aristocracy and the parliament. He died 13 days later. Nevertheless, the coup ultimately failed. The power of the king was placed into the safe hands of a regency council until Gustav's son was of age. In 1809, the parliament had more luck on their side as they overthrew Gustav's son in a coup, which cemented their power. The 1809 coup pretty much laid the foundation for how Sweden's political system looked until the 1970s. The changes were roughly comparable to the American system, where the monarch had similar powers to that of the president. This lasted until 1917, where the monarch had the same powers, but in practice simply adhered to the parliament. A side note, just as the 1719 coup coincided with the war with Russia, so did the 1809 coup, this time resulting in the complete loss of Finland, as we have covered in the Finland episodes. Change usually comes when crises overlap. In the end, the Age of Liberty and its aftermath helped form the basis of the modern Swedish state, both when it comes to the practical structure of government, but also in the more philosophical sense as to what a state should be and how a state should act. While the 1809 loss of Finland was of course a downer for the Swedes, the Napoleonic Wars, which happened in the same period, resulted in a boon for Sweden, the union with Norway. As you might remember, Norway used to be in a union with Denmark. But Denmark sided with Napoleon and Sweden went against him and when Napoleon was finally defeated, well, to the victor goes the spoils, which in this case the spoils were very much Norway. Norway then declared independence from Sweden, but was invaded and forced into a union that lasted until 1905. We have covered the union and the end thereof in the Norway episodes, but I think that from a Swedish perspective, this union was perhaps simply a bit outdated. At face value, the union seems great. Sweden now ruled over the entire Scandinavian peninsula, and was geographically way stronger than the old rival Denmark. But Sweden was also a different country now, and so was Denmark and Norway. Sweden was no longer an autocratic, glory-seeking empire. It was something that would soon become a democracy ruled by a parliament with a constitution. Sweden also had a national identity now, just as Norway did and everyone were beginning to come round to the idea that citizens should be brought together by national bond, rather than what emperor or king that just happened to lord over them. Scandinavism, the idea of a brotherhood between the three Nordic countries, 
had also become popular over the course of the 1800s. All in all, it was just a bit weird to have a monarchical union with another country. And as we have covered, the union just sort of fell apart in the end. We are now nearing a modern Sweden. Just like Norway and Denmark when we get there, around a million people left for the US in the latter half of the 1800s, as jobs in agriculture disappeared. Others went to the cities to work, thus stimulating industrialization. Sweden has always been rich on natural resources, and the Swedes really put these resources to work in the 20th century and used the money to form a strong welfare state based on negotiations between state, workers and bosses. In the world wars, Sweden stayed neutral, which was quite criticized when it came to the Second World War. But this was small state realism. In 1940, Sweden was not a military powerhouse at all. The Germans were not particularly interested in Sweden. They just had to get through and rather than being ruined, the best choice for Sweden was to just stay neutral and let it happen. Not the most heroic thing to do, but hey, when you're a small state, what can you do? Other than carry out skiing sabotage missions like the Norwegians did, of course, but that was not for everyone. Us Danes tried some weird resistance, cooperation, occupation model, but with very questionable results. But we'll get to that. But finally, what kind of country is Sweden today then? Sweden is still a very rich country, with a tight relationship with other Scandinavian countries. The rivalry with Denmark is only noticeable in sports. Actually, I'm not even sure that the Swedes care that much about the rivalry. Maybe it's only the Danes that care about beating the Swedes in handball. I think they care. I hope so. Anyway, despite Sweden's record of being quite warlike, Sweden has been a very peace and neutrality oriented country since the Second World War. Actually, they have more or less been neutral since 1814. However, they still cooperate with UN's peacekeepers and NATO, which means that Swedes have found their way to the war in Afghanistan, among other things. Sweden is also perhaps the most progressive democracy in the world. Difficult to really measure, but I'm throwing it out there. The Swedes have close to a 50-50 male-female split in parliament. They have been pioneering in modernizing laws concerning rape and consent. In the European refugee crisis of 2015, Sweden was one of the only countries who opened up completely to allow refugees into the country. But since every other country just tried to get rid of the refugees, Sweden ended up with a massive refugee problem. Still, nice idea, not really Sweden's fault. Of course, I think it should be noted in all this praise that Sweden has a problem with far-right nationalism. The state minister has described one of the largest Swedish parties, Sverigedemokraterna, as a racist party with Nazi roots, which is quite the statement. One of the problems that modern Sweden faces is the division in the country between the very, let's say, 